0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a special one-on-one
1: conversation between Clay Jenkinson and John Rogusta. John has written books about Jefferson and religion. His new book is on Patrick Henry, and he argues that Jefferson did everything in his power to destroy the historical reputation of the great Patrick Henry.
0: I found it very interesting that Patrick Henry was retired, but he came
1: out of retirement, at George Washington's request. Washington was in despair that Madison and Jefferson had written the Virginia and the Kentucky Resolutions, which brought about a sort of nullification crisis for the early Constitution, and he thought that Patrick Henry, who had opposed the Constitution, would be the perfect man to combat Jefferson and Madison, and he was right. It's a fascinating conversation. Please join us for all that and more on this
0: week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do?, our weekly opportunity to discuss current and historical American events with President Thomas Jefferson, and good day to you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, I know that you are and always have been in favor of very limited government with states being largely responsible for their own governments but i wanted to ask you about the role of the federal government in times of national
1: crises well we had a couple of them during my two terms as president uh chiefly the napoleonic wars so there was a peace, um a temporary peace in the napoleonic wars in 1802 during my first term which meant that my first term was uh, prosperous peaceful very successful. I became a very popular president and I overwhelmingly uh, was re-elected for a second term in 184 by what you in your time would call a landslide. Uh, but then the peace broke down in 1805 in Europe and it became a much more uh, desperate world conflict. France under Napoleon and Britain were at each other's throats. This was really a war of national survival for both of them, or at least they perceived it as such. And because of that, they began to do some things that really impaired our freedom on the seas. They were confiscating cargoes from our ships. They were impressing American sailors into the British Navy. They were doing a whole series of things, sometimes firing on our trade ships. And so being a neutral turned out to be almost impossible. And, and to, um, to survive this crisis, I unfortunately had to encourage Congress to pass embargo laws For a complete embargo, nothing would leave our shores and nothing would come in. I thought that certainly was preferable to war, but this is when you need the national government. And the national government, unfortunately, was not strong enough to prevent widespread uh, smuggling and lawlessness, particularly up on the Canadian border. So uh, yes, uh, state governments are best for almost everything. The national government is always most important on questions of national security.
0: Well, in times of national crises, such as we're experiencing now with the current pandemic, when does the federal government have a responsibility to use its
1: heavy hand for the safety of citizens? Well, almost never. So we should err on the side of state authority. You know, The 10th Amendment says those powers not explicitly delegated to the national government belong to the states and to the people. And so we should always err on the side of, of allowing the states to be as powerful and as sovereign as they can. So if you have things that can be handled at the state level, then that's obviously the right place to handle them, under my philosophy of our republic. But if something truly rises to the level of a national crisis, as the Napoleonic Wars certainly did, then state authority is not going to be enough. You need a coordinated national approach to certain problems. Um, This would be true of the Indian Wars in the American West. Uh, Our frontiers were were such that local and state militias were not able to to control them and to pacify them so there are things but they're all things involving national security we did not have a pandemic during my lifetime we had an epidemic in philadelphia in 1793 and there were epidemics on the northern great plains of smallpox in 1771 and again in the early 19th century But those, of course, involved Native peoples and and were not the business of the federal government of the United States, although I did send vaccine with Meriwether Lewis uh, for the smallpox when he left for uh, the Missouri country in 1803. And I hoped that he would inoculate as many Native peoples as he could. So there's a federal um, uh, experience, a federal administration of a crisis.
0: So there are times when the federal government should step in for the
1: safety of citizens few and far between but in your time because of the mobility of the american people uh, the federal government is going to play a larger role you know in my time most american citizens of which there were about six million never traveled more than 50 miles from their birthplace and so we were a much more localized government and localized nation in 1800 than you are now in your day when people are uh, using the technologies of your time, moving about with great rapidity, uh, questions soon become national that otherwise might have remained uh, local ones. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir.
0: Citizens, And welcome to this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a special one-on-one conversation between the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and the author, John Rogusta, a historian at the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. They begin their conversation discussing a letter George Washington sent to Patrick Henry, outlining his fears for the future of our nation in respect to actions taken by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson.
1: So catch me up. Uh, You've got a number of books. Your main theme, as I've understood it from our previous conversations, has been the history of religious liberty, especially in the early national period. Tell me about your trajectory and how you got to your current project.
2: I came across a fascinating letter from George Washington to Patrick Henry, and it just launched me into an entirely new area of investigation um, because the letter was just so startling. It's January 15, 1799. Both Washington and Henry are living in retirement. And Washington writes this letter to Henry, who he has not seen for 12, 15 years. He has not written to him for four years. And he says, I need you, Patrick Henry, to come out of retirement to save the nation because these people have put party over country, they're going to destroy the Union, Virginia is leading the charge, and it's a disaster, and, and the revolution that you and I led is going to be ruined. Well, these people were Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the Kentucky and Virginia Resolution, was this radical states' rights idea. So I read that letter, George Washington and Patrick Henry versus Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And so that really launched the research. I I started by doing a very short biography of Patrick Henry, which was a very good way to just learn more background and understand people a little better. But now this new book is about Patrick Henry and the crisis of union of 1799 and exactly what happens with all of
1: this This incredible letter from Washington to Henry on January 15, 1799, which, by the way, is only... uh, 10 months before Washington's death, he says, You need to come out of retirement to save us from these Virginians, by which he means Madison partly and Jefferson chiefly. You know, we've always thought that he broke with Jefferson over the other betrayals and the nasty letters and all that. You're sort of saying it may run deeper than that. He may now regard the Jeffersonians as simply dangerous to the Republic.
2: And that's right. In fact, and, and that's what, of course, leads to the book is that. People have underestimated what's going on in 1798, 1799. And we all build on others. A lot of new work has been done on the Alien and Sedition Acts. People like Wendell Byrd, Jonathan Gannett, Terry Halperin. You know, this is why Jefferson and Madison are so worried that the Alien and Sedition Acts were far worse than historians have ever thought. Conventional wisdom was there were 14 prosecutions and they weren't that serious, Byrd and others have shown there were scores of prosecutions, and they're targeted at the Democratic-Republican newspaper editors, and there were more planned, and it was specifically being used as a device in the electoral process. Jefferson and Madison start with a very legitimate concern, a very serious concern, an attack on First Amendment freedoms, an attack on the democratic process. What they do with it, Then brings Washington and Henry out of retirement, saying, No, you've gone too far. And then the third piece of the story, which is interesting, you point out Washington dies in December, Henry dies in June. So, what happens? Jefferson, of course, wins the election. But what I'm showing in the book is that, in many respects, people often accuse Jefferson of hypocrisy in his first administration. I don't think it's hypocrisy. And Madison is leading this, as he often does, saying, you know, we went too far. And you see a very distinct Jefferson and Madison pulling back in 1799, 1800, realizing we were driving the republic very close to the edge. And, you know, the most interesting letter is Madison writes Jefferson in 1798, December 1798. Jefferson receives it in early January, Within a week of the Virginia resolutions being adopted, and Madison's already saying, "You know, maybe we didn't mean what we just said. Uh, maybe we shouldn't go that route." And you know so my suggestion is that Jefferson and Madison are significantly chastened by what's happening, and that this explains Jefferson's administration far better than hypocrisy, and and you'll be very familiar with this play, if you reread that first inaugural address, In light of this, it makes a lot more sense. Jefferson saying, you know, federalists were not being entirely unreasonable. I can see why they were concerned that France might actually invade and destroy things. And, you know, we are all Republicans. We are all federalists. But I think that's not hypocrisy, nor is it, I think most historians view that inaugural address as sort of political pablum, easy for a victor to, to say, you know, everybody get behind me. I think it's really evidence of Jefferson saying, with Madison's encouragement, we need to be a lot more careful with this constitution and this country that we created uh, and realize that we're all in it together. Jefferson's often credited with being the first president who really understands fully the bully pulpit value of, you are the one person that speaks for the whole nation. Well, that's not the way he was talking in 1798 and 99. But by 1800, 1801, he realizes, no, we have to be careful.
1: Okay, but there's a paradox here, right? Because you started by saying the alien sedition and naturalization laws were actually more draconian and more severe than we have hitherto thought. And Jefferson said that they were worthy of the 8th or ninth century, that this was a retrograde motion into something like uh, monarchical autocracy or despotism. And he said, if none of the branches of the national government are going to uh, check or balance these excesses, what's the remedy? Is the remedy that we just bend our heads and hope for better times? Or do we have to then invoke the 10th Amendment and make the states the last counterweight to this? And so in a certain sense, he's right, isn't he?
2: He is right about the problem. I think he's wrong about the solution. And I think history shows he's wrong about the solution. The way I lay it out is that the the crisis was real. The attack, the Alien and Sedition Act. You have three options. What's your normal response? You go to the ballot box and-
1: You, You win the next election.
2: You win the next election. But Jefferson and Madison believed that that wasn't an option because of the Alien and Sedition Acts. How do we run a free and democratic election when they're shutting down the press? Second option, you go to court get it declared unconstitutional, and both Jefferson and Madison understood that was an option. They had talked about that when they were talking about the Bill of Rights, but every one of the judges is a Federalist judge. Six of the seven members of the Supreme Court, again, the new work shows people used to have a, a shorter list, six of the seven members of the Supreme Court had sat on cases involving the Alien and Sedition Act without ever raising the
1: constitutionality, so that doesn't work. And plus, right. Jefferson Jefferson doesn't really want to credit the judiciary with that much power either.
2: Well, no, although during the, the debates over the Bill of Rights, when he's urging Madison we need a Bill of Rights, he says it will put a check in the hand of the judiciary. So if they had thought they could have won at court... And
1: they might have been for it.
2: He would have had no objection. So he comes to this third option. We have to enlist the states. But... Henry, in his final speech, and this is a speech which I think is one of the most important speeches in American history and has been given far too little uh, attention at Charlotte Courthouse in March of 1799. Henry says, Look, I was the leading anti Federalist. I told you this was going to happen. I told you the federal government would be too powerful. I told you they would violate your rights. But we all accepted this in a democratic process. I lost. And Henry brings up a phrase that he had used in 1788 when he lost the ratification debate. We must seek reform in a constitutional way. And he says, go to the ballot box if you don't like this Alien and Sedition Act. And in a sense, history proves him correct, because that is, after all, what Jefferson and Madison did. And they did win, in spite of their fear that that wouldn't work because of the Alien and Sedition Act. And of course, you have strange things going on. There are actually more Democratic-Republican newspapers at the end of the Alien Sedition Act than there was at the beginning, because thankfully, America's reporters, America's newspaper men stood up and said, you know, heck no, we're, we're, you know, we're going to publish. Henry says, look, if it doesn't work, if you, this is the very end of his speech, if you are repressed by a tyrannical government and the ballot box is not working, you have no choice but revolution, but we're not there right now. And again, history demonstrated that was correct. You get well, or you get the Jefferson Revolution of 1800, but that was a revolution at the ballot
1: box. All right, you, you say these three choices. Uh, n- number one is uh, win the next election, which they did, and so they 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 despaired unnecessarily. Right, they
2: lost badly in 1798, 99
1: in in the congressional elections, and it was a near miss in 1800. Uh, second, the courts, which turned out to be of no value here, and third, um, you enlist the states. There are there are. Fourth and fifth options. The fourth option is that you secede, that you just say we're out, and and you know Jefferson flirts with this a couple of times in the yeah. course of his career, and then the fifth option is you take up your muskets. So by that taxonomy, the the, the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions option is relatively tame compared to armed mm-hmm. rebellion. Well,
2: I, I I don't distinguish the third and the fourth, and, and nor did the people at the time. They say, look, if the states can unilaterally determine what laws they, they declare, the declare the law will be different in Kentucky than it is in Maryland, Pennsylvania, the, the union dissolves, which is exactly what Washington is saying to Henry in that letter, the union dissolves. But yes, you have and as I said, Henry recognizes, he said you always have the ability, not the right, the ability to take up arms, but you only do that if
1: the democratic process has entirely failed. What makes Washington think that Henry, who had been one of the principal anti-federalists, is going to welcome this letter?
2: That's what's fascinating. Now, of course, these people all knew each other. I mean, Henry and Washington had been close going back to the revolution. Henry had helped Washington at Valley Forge. He was one of the first governors to respond very aggressively to get supplies to Valley Forge. I think Washington realizes that, first of all, Henry is... With the exception of Washington, is the most popular politician in Virginia at the time, even more so than than Jefferson. Uh, So I think to some extent, it was the natural person for Washington to turn to. And the last time they had communicated, Washington had written uh, Henry and offered him the position of secretary of state, because after Jefferson resigns, he writes to Henry and says, you know, we need you. And Henry writes back and says, I'm retired, I did not support this Constitution. You all run it. That's fine. I'm not opposed to it. And he he makes a point of, I'm not fighting you, but it's not my government. You run the government. And he has a final paragraph where he says, I will only come out of retirement if the union that we helped to create is in danger.
0: You're listening to a special one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and John Augusta. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We rejoin the conversation between Clay Jenkinson and John Regusta.
1: In that letter, Henry's response, he says, You know, I was the principal anti Federalist. And he could easily have said, You made your bed now, lie in it, buddy. He could have said, I was right and I washed my hands of the thing. You should have listened to me at the time. You know, if you won't listen to somebody of my stature, then uh, you're going to have to play this thing out as best you can. But he didn't do that.
2: And that's why I think this is such a remarkably important story. Um, And obviously it has present implications. You know, Henry, I led the opposition to this. Um, I warned you it would violate your rights. But we, the American people, adopted it. And if you're living in a democracy, you lose sometimes. And if every time you lose, you take your ball and go home, and you say, I'm not going to play, or I'm going to have a revolution, um, you can't have a functioning republic. So for Henry to say this, and and by the way, this is, um, you know, the things you discover as you're doing the research, there is an article that comes out in spring of 1799, and you know how these articles would get picked up by the newspapers and reprinted. It was entitled in most of the newspapers, A Lesson for Men of All Parties. But this article gets reprinted, even by the standards of the time, unbelievably, all over the nation. It's reprinted. And it's the editor saying exactly what you just said. Patrick Henry opposed the Constitution's ratification. He did everything that was possible, was opposed on principle. And yet here he is in 1799. He thinks the nation's at risk. And he says, you know, my nation needs my my service, nation above party, you know, I'm going to come out and support this. In many respects, Henry is the intellectual godfather of the Democratic-Republican Party, of the, you know, small government, let's maintain the states. Read what Henry says during the ratification debates. That's all Henry. Of course, the oddity, Peter Oniff points this out in his most recent book, that Jefferson's political philosophy and Henry's are actually, in many respects, quite similar Jefferson, of course, would never acknowledge that, nor would Henry, because of the personal animosity there. Um, but at the end of the day, what we think of is um, Jefferson's political philosophy and Henry's, you know, really very close.
1: Hey, who wrote that, a lesson for men of all parties?
2: I, I don't recall. It's because it's one of those, there's no attribution. Um, it's the editor of, uh, I think it first came out in one of the New York
1: newspapers. So it's, it's not Henry or Washington or somebody that they hired. No, 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 no. Because what it says is if I if I'm hearing you right, if Henry believes that the union's at risk, everyone needs to listen because Henry is not a person who loved union.
2: Exactly. And the newspaper battle, which I spent a fair amount of time on in this book manuscript, the Aurora, of course, which is the leading Democratic Republican newspaper, had come out in I believe it was February, is February or early March, praising Henry. Because John Adams had just appointed Henry as the third negotiator to go back to France to try to work it out in the Quasi War and work things out, and so the Aurora Princess uh, response uh, the, to Adams saying, "Well, yeah, Henry's a great choice. He's brilliant. He's the leading Republican. You know, he, nobody can doubt Henry's wisdom or virtue." Well, within a couple of months, when Henry comes out and after this lesson the men of all parties comes out, the Aurora is trashing Patrick Henry saying he's senile, he's vain, um, you know, what's he talking about? Um, you know, so this this political battle is going on, and, and people realize that, gee, if Patrick Henry has come out. Um, now, Washington was not as public at that time. It only comes out later, um, when, uh, after Henry's dead, there are some letters between Henry and Washington, and Blair is the other person who's getting these letters, um, that come out at the end of 1799, just before Washington's death, and then they're reprinted in 1800. You know, again, it's an interesting series of events. Jefferson and Madison correctly identify an enormous problem. I think they have a, and Henry and Washington think they have a very bad solution. Henry and Washington oppose, but then the real Final scene in the story is Jefferson and Madison, I think, reacting.
1: Pulling back from the brink. So why did—I get that Jefferson would write the Kentucky Resolutions, of course. It's just so Jefferson. He was, you know, he's given to these sort of uh, wild moments where he he wants to not burn the whole thing down, but he's willing to risk everything for whatever his concept is of republic or liberty. But I always have wondered that Madison didn't talk him out of the whole thing, because Madison normally can talk Jefferson out of his wilder moments. Madison wrote a softer Virginia resolutions, but you're saying that he was uneasy even about those.
2: Yes. And in fact, again, fill in some more blanks there. You're absolutely right. Jefferson is prone to this. And Madison says this after Jefferson's dead, that he has these wild fancies. Paige Smith, you know, um, historian, people don't read so much anymore, used to refer to Jefferson as like an artist. He had these wild flashes and and ideas that he would throw out. But after Jefferson drafts the Kentucky resolutions and sends them off, it's not clear whether Madison had an opportunity to intervene uh, before they're sent to Kentucky. But then Madison drafts the Virginia resolutions, and Jefferson sees them before they're submitted in Virginia. And Jefferson tries to get stronger language inserted to Virginia, null, void, of no force or effect. And this is one of the instances, there are very few of them, where we can see Jefferson and Madison arguing about a very important, very public document. Most people don't know it's Jefferson and Madison arguing behind the scenes, but Jefferson has Taylor insert that language, null, void, of no force and effect. Madison, who's not a member of the legislature, finds out, and he gets his people to get that language pulled back out. You know, one of the key distinctions between the Kentucky Resolution and the Virginia Resolutions, which people who really focus on them, Kentucky talks about a state can do this, Virginia talks about states can do this, which is very ambiguous because after all, the states can propose an amendment under Article Six of the Constitution and and force Congress to, to consider amendments, And that gets adopted, the the Virginia resolutions are adopted, but within a week, Madison is writing Jefferson saying, you know, that those resolutions we just got adopted, when we say states, maybe what we meant is the people of the states, not the state government. Now, by the way, this is ludicrous. If you read the resolutions and read what was being said, that is not what those resolutions say. But here's Madison immediately realizing we're playing with fire to say that a state government can unilaterally, um, you know, declare this unconstitutional. And Jefferson is toying with succession. I mean, he writes to John Taylor in the, I think it's the summer of 1799, and is, is toying with the idea of succession. Um, so Madison realizes very early on, we may have gone too far. And then Jefferson by 1800 is adopting that Madisonian language, that it's the people who have the authority. Well, Henry said exactly the same thing. In an extremity, the people always have the authority to, to revolt. Um, so I do think this is one of these instances. If you say Jefferson often would have these, these ideas, and, and sometimes Madison, for example, when he wanted to uh, uh, you know have the constitution disappear after 19 years. Madison says, you know, Tom, that's not really a very good idea, and here's why, and Jefferson does think better of it. Um, There are other instances people are not aware of. Jefferson, for example, wanted to ban clergy from from serving in the legislature, and Madison says, you know, think about it. That's really penalizing people for religion as opposed to the government being neutral on religion, and and Jefferson says, yeah, you're right, and he pulls back. Um, Here, the, you know, the Kentucky resolutions came out before they could have that that conversation. Um, now, by the way, Jefferson, as you know, um, comes back to a much more radical view of states rights after eighteen twenty
1: and then he writes another big thing to Madison, which Madison gets him to suppress.
2: Right. The 1825 proposal to get the Virginia legislature. And again, that was a crazy, same thing. Jefferson has this brilliant idea, but it's crazy uh, because what he wanted the Virginia state legislature to do was to take unconstitutional, what he viewed as unconstitutional federal laws and adopt them word for word as Virginia laws. So that people wouldn't be abiding by the unconstitutional federal law, they would be abiding by the constitutional Virginia law. And and Madison says uh, that doesn't really work very well. You can't do that. And and if we want to oppose at that time, it was the infrastructure laws. If we want to oppose these infrastructure laws as being unconstitutional, let's do it straight up. Um, you know. So that's. but that's only after eighteen twenty. That Jefferson's rhetoric. And again, he's criticized as being a hypocrite. I don't think that's what's happening. His rhetoric on states' rights between 1800 and 1820 is much more moderate and, and, and seems to realize that we've created a nation here, but we could also lose um, the nation if we're not careful.
1: But then in the, in the Missouri Compromise, he freaks out all over again.
2: And, and to some extent, you know, once again, he's identifying a problem correctly. We know uh, that it is going to lead to a terrible civil war. By the way, that that term civil war, I talk about that a lot in the book as well, because when the Kentucky Resolution and Virginia Resolutions come out, it's reprinted all over the country in articles, headlines, civil war. This is going to lead to a civil war. So it's not just Henry and Washington. A number of people, Hamilton is saying the same thing. Of course, Jefferson and Madison can easily dismiss Hamilton. uh, But the newspapers are reprinting that that Kentucky and Virginia are going to lead us down the road of a civil war
1: remember what Hamilton was doing. Uh, he was trying to use the, the buildup to the French, the response to the French Revolution with the plan of marching through Virginia to put an end to this once and for all. So yes. if Jefferson is saying wild things, Hamilton is saying insane things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's been said since day one, since this all occurs in 1798, 99, that Virginia was arming for a potential conflict with the federal government. Now, most historians dismiss that, and we could talk about it. It's complicated um Hamilton believes that Virginia is arming for a i mean it's pretty clear that he believes that. I think Henry and Washington are very concerned that that may be happening, and I think it's not as as clear as most historians treat it as no that that wasn't happening
1: all right, so there's so many leads I want to pick up here, so I want to start by saying, I mean, there are people far to the left of Jefferson that he's trying to hold in place without getting too far gone in this equation. So he's not at the extreme end of this movement.
2: Absolutely right. And and the the letter on succession, people say Jefferson, again, a lot of reports will say, well, Jefferson wasn't talking about succession. Well, no, yes, he was. Um, and the letters with Taylor make that clear. But then Madison writes to Jefferson and and um, and Jefferson wasn't saying we should succeed tomorrow, but he was saying that maybe we what we have to do here. And Madison writes back and says, "Tom, Tom, we're not anywhere near that yet,
1: but wait a minute, I mean, just for the record here, Madison never called Jefferson Tom <laughs> right I,
2: I, you, well, I don't know what he called him. I wasn't there. Um, does he refer to him as Thomas? I,
1: Mr. Jefferson, probably.
2: Perhaps. I I always, and I'm glad you said that because, um, and I won't name them. You'll know who they are. They're historians who always refer to uh, Jefferson referring to Madison as Jimmy. Never. And I always find that a little bit, um, you
1: know, I don't see Thomas Jefferson referring to James Madison as Jimmy. Either one of them for different reasons. I mean, Jefferson is a character out of a Jane Austen novel. So you know how he's going to react. But Madison is, and that's what I want to ask you about next. Is you know the you know the usual view of this that Jefferson is gone in Europe, Madison and Hamilton engineer the Constitution, they become partners in the centralization of, of federal authority of national authority. Jefferson comes back on his leave of absence, seduces Madison away from Hamilton. Hamilton is hurt and miffed, um, and that. Jefferson pulls Madison to the left, but Madison, in turn, prevents Jefferson's whoppers. That's the usual narrative, right? I think you're correcting you're correcting that somewhat. Uh,
2: somewhat. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I, I think one of the things that's left out is, first of all, there's a lot of personalities going on here. These these people, is, as you well know, they're not marble bust statues, and so um, you know, we're talking about Jefferson and Henry's conflict in the 1790s. Of course, the real problem with Jefferson and Henry occurs with the governor's investigation in 1781. And Jefferson, if if there's any human being who you could say Jefferson hated, it's Patrick Henry. Uh, He disliked Alexander Hamilton, but I don't think he really hated Alexander Hamilton. Um, But those personalities are coming into play. So um, to modify your conventional story a little bit, after Madison and Henry, they're the two going head-to-head in the Virginia Ratification Convention, which is critical. If Virginia doesn't ratify, you don't get a country. New York would not have ratified, North Carolina wouldn't have ratified, Rhode Island didn't ratify.
1: And Henry's quoting Jefferson against yeah. Madison in the ratification conference.
2: Which I'm sure Madison was, was oh, no, you know, he writes Jefferson and tells him, you, you realize you're giving me a headache, Henry's quoting you. Yeah,
1: who's, who's he matter at? I mean he probably madder at Jefferson than at than at Henry at this point.
2: He, he was not happy that Jefferson had allowed that to happen. But afterwards, when you look at what Madison does with the Bill of Rights, because Madison all through the ratification debates had said, we don't need a Bill of Rights. And in fact, he had written Jefferson and said, it might be dangerous because, you know, we'll write down a couple rights, we'll forget to write down something else. And people will say, well, obviously you don't have that freedom. Madison is not only listening to Jefferson when he decides to adopt the Bill of Rights. He's also listening to the Anti-Federalists in Henry. And in particular, Henry had over and over pounded on the uh, Necessary and Proper Clause that you keep telling us this is a constitution of enumerated powers, but on its face, it recognizes there are certain implied powers to the federal government. And so when Madison starts talking about the necessity of having a Bill of Rights, he's talking about the necessary and proper clause. Now, again, he won't credit Henry, because Henry's trying to gerrymander him out of a position in the Congress. Uh, They had had battles over religious freedom. Um, But there's a recognition that, you know, maybe Henry was, and Jefferson, I mean, I think Madison is realizing from two different directions, he's hearing it from Jefferson, he's hearing it from Henry that we need a Bill of Rights. And this government that I helped to create with Hamilton does have implied powers, and it will grow. So the other interesting piece in all of this is when Hamilton starts to expand the powers of the federal government, uh, the National Bank, Assumption of the Debts, um, and Madison and Jefferson are already getting nervous, and you get all of those essays from Madison in 1792 that he publishes about the there need to be constraints in the federal government. Henry is still in the Virginia legislature when the Assumption of the Debts comes out, and he leads the Virginia legislature in opposition to the federal Assumption of the Debts. And Hamilton has gone crazy. He's like, Virginia has no right. What are they doing? And a number of historians, uh, including historians of of Henry, say, well, Jefferson's Kentucky and Virginia resolutions are really just built on Henry's opposition to the assumption of the debts. The, The Virginia legislature says this is unconstitutional. The federal government has no authority. I argue that, no, these things are world apart. If you read Henry's opposition, nowhere do they suggest that the state can interfere with the federal authority. When you read what Henry says we should do in Virginia, he says we need to petition the federal government to reverse course. And and so Henry um, is active in opposition to Hamilton's expansion of power, as are Madison and Jefferson. This idea of nullification, Jefferson invents in 1798. Nobody is talking about nullification in response to Hamilton's financial program. Nobody is talking about nullification when they adopt the carriage tax and John Taylor goes crazy. They have no right to do a carriage tax. Nobody is talking about nullification in response to the Jay Treaty. So there's this opposition to the federal government and its assumption of power in a very Henry-esque tone joined by Jefferson and Madison, and and again, the crisis of 1798, the crisis of the Alien and Sedition Act, that suddenly Jefferson comes up with a much more aggressive approach. Now, I should say one exception to that is Jefferson, uh, again, as you say, he would throw out ideas. You may recall that when Hamilton proposes the bank bill and it's adopted, Jefferson writes Madison and says, we ought to convict anybody who works with the National Bank Enrichment of Treason, Um, and and they ought to be convicted of treason and hung.
0: You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a special one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and John Regusta. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to this final segment of this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour, a special one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and the author and historian John Rogusta.
1: How hard was it to be James Madison as the best friend and collaborator with Thomas Jefferson? I mean, that had to be, obviously, he revered Jefferson in some very important ways and never lost that, that there was a certain sense in which he sacrificed his own life and career to this this great visionary. So that tells you that there was something about Jefferson that is truly magnificent, that you cannot doubt, that to be to let him in, to let him into your soul, as, as he did with a number of people, was to lift that person into a different state of being in some sense. And there's a loyalty to Jefferson that Hamilton's accolades don't have, that there's something about Jefferson is my point. And we should never, ever, ever forget that.
3: That's and
2: absolutely correct. And, uh, and it, yeah. you know, when I, I uh, occasionally will do presentations here in Monticello and other places about Jefferson and leadership. And one of the first things I'll mention is look, look at the people he mentors and who revere Jefferson and will do anything for Jefferson. And that does speak uh, a great deal about his character. I think the Madison and Jefferson relationship, which, of course, is fascinating to many people. I remember from my own legal career when I practiced law, some people are better strategists, and some people are better tacticians. And and this is a little simplistic in this case, because I don't want to be unfair to either Jefferson and Madison, but you oftentimes will see in either political or in military or in business relationships, the strategists and the tacticians. And to some extent, I think that's what's going on. Jefferson's a big picture idea, big idea guy. Uh, Madison is much more, I I point out, Madison's never trained as a lawyer. He's a much more careful lawyer than Jefferson is, in terms of, you know, this is the way you get it done. This is the way you draft that language. Jefferson has ideas. But yeah, he obviously compels um, this type of relationship with a lot of people.
1: I would just slightly adjust that, strategist versus tactician. I think that Jefferson is, a Paige Smith is right, that he's a creative visionary. And his visions are almost always the right ones. But Madison has to say, A, how do we get there from here? And B, we live in the real world. And, and I think that that's what Madison was able to do for Jefferson. Even so, if Jefferson's correspondence had been published in his own lifetime, it's hard for me to imagine that he could have been the president of the United States. It's too wild. So we look at this with the wrong lens, right? Because we see all those radical pronouncements of Jefferson that were really in a letter to William Short in a letter to Smith, in a letter to uh, Abigail Adams. He didn't publish this stuff. These weren't op-ed pieces. And so we don't know what the public really saw. There was a sense that he was maybe too Frenchified, too radical. You know, Hamilton said he's, he's in too much earnest about his democracy. But But if Jefferson had revealed himself, it's hard for me to imagine that he could have been trusted.
2: I, I think that that's right, and, and maybe that's true of any politician. If you really got into their diary, you know, would you, would you want that person? Um, but that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, historians now, we have so much better access to the newspapers from the era. And I rely very heavily on, on those newspaper accounts to see what what people saw. What are they reading? And they are certainly not reading this letter from Jefferson to Madison, where he says anybody who cashes a check at the uh, First National Bank of Richmond should be hung for treason. But they are seeing the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. They don't know immediately that it's Jefferson and Madison. But the public reaction to those becomes very important. And the public reaction to, to Henry's speech becomes very important in my story, that, that um, there was a recognition that, um, you know, that Kentucky and Virginia, those resolutions are are dangerous. That's going to take us in a, in a different direction. You know, and to some extent, we may not want to know everything that's in a politician's diary. It may not be a bad thing.
1: I'm just saying that Jefferson looks at, at civilization from 38,000 feet, and he's comfortable with a level of mayhem that would have been alarming to anyone, including Madison, but Madison was willing to protect him. I, I imagine Madison going to dolly and saying, wait till you see this one.
2: Well, the Adam and Eve letter. I mean, you know, now the the notes on Virginia does get out. And of course he, he pays for that politically. He's, he's attacked for the rest of his career because of the things that were said in there that were perhaps too honest uh, in in one sense. But there are other letters. The Adam and Eve letter does not come out. The blood for the tree of Liberty letter does not come out. Uh, As I point out, you know, Jefferson's awfully free with other people's blood um, in some of these letters.
1: So what I hear you saying, John, is that uh, Patrick Henry has gotten a bad rap in American history and that the chief architect of that bad rap was none other than our hero, Thomas Jefferson.
2: Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. But, but and, you know, but part of this is, is you know, there's a really a fundamental point here which is these guys are not the marble statues. They're people, and they got angry at each other, and Jefferson got really angry at Patrick Henry. Because,
1: because you doubted my heart and not just my head. That that was unfair. Okay, I'm not a militarist, but my heart is pure, and you attacked my honor when you could have just said maybe not the best governor. Here's my view. Canada is like 200 miles north of my home. That's uh, a very peaceful country. It's a very law-abiding country. There's no don't tread on me. There's no Confederate flag. There's you know, So the nonsense of our time with the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus and the January 6th insurrection and this whole thing, that's an American phenomenon that you don't see in the same measure in Britain, Scotland, Canada, other countries. There's a bit of it. That seems to me is owing to people like Jefferson, and Ethan Allen and Patrick Henry, they may be misunderstood, they may be mis- being misused, but this element, this kind of liberty is so important, kind of Lee Greenwood's anthem, liberty, my freedom, that's more important than anything. And if I have to bring down the government for that, well, by God, I'll do it. that I hope I'm not caricaturing, but these people think they are the actual residual rump of the true revolutionary spirit. And you and I are morons who have drunk the Kool-Aid of the big state and the welfare state that comes from these guys, even if it's a misunderstanding of them. And I think it's basically a nuisance element in American life.
2: Oh, I think I think you're onto an important point. but it, And again, some of the modern historians don't like to grapple with this, but I think it's very much true. I think Gordon Wood and Bernard Bala and others do a very good job. There is a shift that occurs. And you can't date it to a particular date, and you can't assign it to one individual. But politics in the 18th century were very communitarian. Um, what we used to call classical Republican. And it becomes very, and again, the term to become difficult becomes liberal, classically liberal, which means I care about my rights, where are my liberties? And um, Jefferson certainly leads that charge. Um, now, I think it's taking Jefferson wrong because first of all nobody's completely liberal, you know my rights at the time. Um, but I do think there is an aspect of this shift. From communitarianism to liberalism, individual rights from community rights. And I, I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. I don't dwell on it because, as I said, modern historians don't like to grapple with this issue. But I think to some extent, George Washington and Patrick Henry in the 1790s are reflecting that earlier communitarian view. And by communitarian, I, we need to be concerned about the community. The democracy exists not to protect my rights only. Yeah, that's important, but it's to protect the community, and that's exactly what Henry's saying when he comes out of retirement. Yeah, I said if you'd asked me, we wouldn't have a constitution, but we agreed to this, and and we've lost uh, for many reasons. We could. We could spend the next week talking about why, but we've lost the sense of communitarianism that was very much at the heart of the American revolution. Um, it was not about a radical individual, uh, rights. Yeah, we were going to get those, but we were going to get those as part of a community. It was about representation. It was about, you know, the, the, the right to have your voice heard, not the right to decide on your own. Um, and i think that is part of what's happening here at the end of the 1790s um and you know jefferson probably more than madison um fixated on individual liberty
1: but not entirely he's a commonwealth man he believes that yeah. there that there that, that my own uh responsibilities don't end in my person or my family that we have community responsibilities that it's a commonwealth um and that this is a, a social. There's a tacit social compact as well as an explicit social compact. So Jefferson is quoted out of context in this, but he but he set himself up for this with those wild letters,
2: right? And and the ward republics and all that. So that he, absolutely, I think they take Jefferson too far. But but I do think there is a shift that is occurring uh, at, at the turn of the 19th century, and I think Jefferson, to some extent, is leading that. And as you say, he's then been taken even to an extreme, um, and you know, that we need to be concerned about community uh, in a way that we probably haven't been.
1: I've heard you say in this conversation, with Henry cannot be located simply in give me liberty or give me death, that that's a really a, um, an irresponsible way to think of that's what he gave to America.
2: Absolutely. That, that, that is absolutely misreading him. First of all, it misreads him in 1775. It was not, you listen to the modern Tea Party, no taxation that was not what they were saying there's no taxation without representation when henry says give me liberty or give me death he's he's talking about the fact that i have no representation in england and if you doubt that's what henry's saying look at what he says during the ratification debates look at what he says in 1790 when hamilton's plan is proposed look at what he says in 1799 when he comes out and says look we're all in this together um, i didn't vote for this constitution but we did and so we have to live with it. Um,
1: so how so how worried are you, John? How worried are you about the disintegration of the American Republic? Not that we've been a republic for a very long time.
2: Um, I hesitate. I, I uh, sometimes I worry a lot about it, um, and and I worry as a historian. And maybe Clay, Clay, I'm sure you've had the same thing. I I worry that I. I'm an early American historian. I care about Jefferson and Madison and Henry and Washington and Randolph, but how that history is being misused um, to attack the Republic in ways that Jefferson and Madison and Henry and Washington would be appalled. Am I worried we won't we won't survive? You know, time will tell. I do think uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in Jefferson's statements that if the American people are educated and informed, people forget the third thing on his tombstone. It's about public education. Um, I think public education is extremely important. And I think if the people are educated and informed, he thought a free press was extremely important. um, They will, and and he also says, over time, they will make mistakes. And and I think there's there's certainly hope. You know, Jefferson's comment to Adams, I I prefer the uh, dreams of the future rather than the dreams of the past, I'm I'm paraphrasing.
1: Now, let me ask one last whopper. Jefferson, as you know, has become the poster child for all the unresolved race issues in the early national period. And of course, he richly deserves it, having written what he wrote and having been a hypocrite in the ways that he was, etc. But he's not alone, obviously. Uh, Where is Henry in all of this? Is Henry better, worse, the same as Jefferson? How do we evaluate the asterisk in Henry's life and career based upon enslavement?
2: It's a very good question. I think there's some strong parallels, some ways Henry's better, some ways he's worse. Um, Strong parallels, Henry owns a number of people. He does not free them just the way Jefferson does not free them. He is worse in the sense that he could have afforded. To free them. Henry could have taken action, and much like Jefferson, he only frees a few. He, he, In his will, he basically says his wife may, if she wishes, free uh, several of them. Now, he's providing for a very large family. Many of them are still very young. He is adamant, because he got nothing from his father, really, um, he is adamant that
1: he is going to leave very substantial legacies. All right, so my last question to you as we close is, How can you sit there in Jefferson's world and dump on this man so completely and so viciously as you've done in the last hour and a half? I mean, an unrelenting attack and saying that he ruined the, the life and the reputation of one of the most important men in American history.
2: Well, you know, I've I've had editors say the same thing. You're being very unkind to Thomas Jefferson. I'm not being unkind. If I'm saying something wrong or inaccurate, tell me. You know, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, my boss, Andrew O'Shaughnessy, here at the International Center for Jefferson Studies, believes we need to study and and understand these things. The real development, though, that in my own thinking, had I written this book five years ago, it would have been much harder on Jefferson. I have a much greater appreciation for how serious the crisis was in 1798 and I hope I'm being fair to Jefferson and Madison, that they were correct that the Alien and Sedition Acts were a, a terrible um, thing and, and really threatened uh, the nation in, in a much more serious manner than we ever thought. Having said that, I think what Jefferson proposes is, goes too far. And then his treatment of Patrick Henry, he's very unkind to Patrick Henry. And again, I use the, the analogy when I talk with people about Alexander Hamilton. Jefferson in retirement, you you know, and as he when it's suggested that Hamilton was a traitor and was going to go to England if the United States failed, Jefferson drops a footnote and says, Alexander Hamilton was far above this. He understood that his dispute with Alexander Hamilton was basically political. Uh, he didn't like Hamilton. He thought he was wrong politically. He thought his solutions were wrong. But he respected what Hamilton, that Hamilton was a political actor who he was in opposition to. Henry, it was personal. It was honor. Um, and, and so, um, you know, is that is that being unkind to Mr. Jefferson to recognize that he had a personal uh, dispute. He tells James Monroe. It's, it's, you know, an injury that will only be healed by the all-healing grave.
1: For a major statesman who rode through this entire thing, who else had a, a career as long as Thomas Jefferson's? And for him to think that it, to be such a thin-skinned person as he was is astonishing, considering all that.
2: But it's interesting. It. it the nature of that attack was such, because he has many political enemies over time, and obviously he, I'm not sure I would describe him as thin-skinned, because if he were, he would have had many of these kinds of personal vendettas. This, this particular incident in 1781, and he says it, he you know, it, this really pushed him over the edge, and he blames Henry. And, and again, I think rightfully so. I think it was Henry.
1: So the whale is the whale.
2: I think the whales, again, there are other historians who disagree, including, you know, very well-known historians. Uh, But I I think Henry was behind it.
1: John, I've absolutely loved this. It's been so much fun. I hope we can do more. This is the kind of dialogue we need. I've learned a tremendous amount. I can't wait for your book.
2: Watch for the book. Hopefully I'll have news on it soon. I have uh, my editor's suggestion. uh, I'm at John Regosta on Twitter now. So that once the book uh, is due for publication, I I plan to be tweeting a little bit about
1: it. You know, join the club. (laughs) I'm not sure it's a good idea. See you soon, my friend.
2: Take care, Clay. Clay, I
0: really enjoyed this conversation. And I congratulate you on these one-on-one conversations. They're just great. And I hope we'll have more of them as well. And with that, sir, it's time to say goodbye for this week.
1: David, will do a lot more of these one-on-one interviews in the year 2022, and Lindsay Chervinsky has agreed to do a number of our series, Ten Things, the next one on Lafayette. But meanwhile, we'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The
3: Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727 This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.